0: Good morning, and uh, Ms. Rogers, who is accompanying you for the record? Go ahead.
1: Bryant Rogers, who is the tribe's attorney.
0: Welcome, Mr. Rogers. Just for the record, uh, we'll begin with you, Mr. Ben. Thank you for appearing. Thank Please you, sir. proceed. Thank you, sir. Good morning. My
2: name is Charlie Ben, and I am the director of administration for the Office of Chief Philip Martin, Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. With me today are Nell Rogers, who works in the tribal planning office in the area of legislative affairs, who will also offer testimony in a few moments. Don Kilgore, the tribe's General attorney general is here as well. Mr. Kilgore will also offer brief brief testimony and assist in answering questions that you may have. Also present with the panel is C. Bryant Rogers, outside counsel for the tribe. We certainly appreciate this opportunity to present the views of the tribe as regards the committee's ongoing investigation into the conduct of Jack Abramoff and Michael Scanlon. The Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians is a federally recognized Indian tribe of nearly 10,000. Most of whose members reside in eight reservation communities located on trust lands scattered over a five-county area in East Central Mississippi. The majority of our tribal members are full-blood Choctaw language speaking. We are descendants of those Choctaw people who resisted repeated efforts by the federal government to to force their relocation to Oklahoma. This continued from 1830 through the early 1900s. The tribes' reservation lands are poor and unproductive, and the tribe is without any natural resources which could be used to generate income. The Mississippi Choctaws were ignored and abandoned by the Congress and federal executive branch for almost a century finally securing our initial Indian reservation lands in 1944 and federal recognition as a separate tribe in 1945. Our members were then essentially destitute without any resources and our tribal government was basically powerless to help them. Unemployment was so prevalent among our tribal members that we knew we had to find another path and we did. We made the choice to pursue staff determination as the best means to meet the growing needs of the tribe and to pursue manufacturing jobs as the best means of employing large numbers of our people. Beginning with one tribal employee in 1963, the Mississippi choctaws have grown to become the second largest employee in Mississippi, employing some 9,200 people. We operate about 25 different commercial enterprises The tribe has developed a strong and stable government, providing the full array of governmental services. This includes the operation of a large school system, police and fire protection services, courts, hospital, clinics, social, housing, realty, and economic development agencies. These were key ingredients of our latest success in building a reservation economy and attracting private investment. The passage of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the introduction of Class Three gaming in 1989 in Mississippi led to the development of the tribe's current Pearl River Resort. We have invested over $1 billion in this development, which has created jobs and generated income. Rather than make large distribution payments to tribal members, we chose to invest in, in our future in a different way. The success of the resort has allowed the tribe to begin catching up from generations of poverty. There has been extraordinary progress, but as set forth in more detail in Chief Martin's written testimony, still significant needs remain, particularly in the areas of health, education, and housing. And since all of our enterprise growth has been debt financed, we still have a $300 million debt load to retire. Because of the tribe's government-to-government relationships with the United States and because of the need to protect tribal investments and our ability to repay business debt, the Mississippi Choctaws have engaged in extremely active and aggressive efforts to monitor and affect the federal decision-making process and to shape public opinion on matters affecting the tribe's political and economic interests. To achieve this, we have long engaged experienced professionals including lobbyists with prestigious law firms who know and understand how federal lobbying and grassroots advocacy works. Our effort in this regard have historically been successful, and we have relied upon the professional expertise and integrity of those law firms and their lobbyists to ensure that this work is handled for us in a lawful and appropriate manner. So when the initial press reports emerged last year regarding the large fees paid to Jack Abramoff at Greenberg Troy regard Michael Scanlon by a number of tribes for lobbying work and grassroots advocacy. We had no reason to believe that anything questionable had occurred concerning those payments or their work for us, and we were, we were pleased with the results that we had achieved. Later, we have learned, based on the work of the committee and our turn, is, that Mr. Abramoff, along with Mr. Scanlon, had engaged in what appears to be a consistent pattern of kickbacks misappropriated funds, payment induced onto, under false pretenses, and padded billings, all orchestrated by Mr. Abramoff from his position as Senior Director of Governmental Affairs for greenberg Traurig LLP, the law firm which the tribe has retained to handle its public affairs needs stating starting in January 2001. From the offset of this matter, the tribe has fully cooperated with the FBI and the Justice Department, and since July 2004, almost a year ago, shortly after we saw evidence of apparent wrongdoing on the part of Mr. Wolf and Mr. Scanlon, we have worked closely with the committee to further its investigation. Early on this process, however, the tribe raised with the committee its concern that sensitive information regarding its lawful lobbying and public affairs activities not be unduly disclosed through the committee's investigation of Mr. Abramoff and Mr. Scanlon and of the tribe's First Amendment right to protect against such involuntary disclosure. The tribe certainly appreciates that the committee has respected the tribe's First Amendment rights throughout this. Consistent with this position, the tribe has shared all requested documents and information with committee staff but has declined to place in the record information regarding the tribe's First Amendment protected activities. When disclosures of such information is not required, this remains the tribe's position today. I would now like to defer to Ms. Rogers to discuss how the tribe came to employ Mr. Abramoff and Mr. Scanlon and further details on our lobbying activities and to request that the committee's questions be deferred until each of us on this panel has had the opportunity make an opening statement. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Ben, Mr.
0: Kilgore, or Ms. Rogers, whichever way. Ms. Rogers is fine.
2: Thank
1: you. Good morning, and thank you, Senator McCain and Senator Dorgan and Senator Noe for your comments.
0: Can you pull that a little bit closer so that... Thank you.
1: Thank you. And I'd also like to say that we appreciate the work of your staff in pulling together our information for the hearing. Prior to 1994, Chief Martin was the tribe's primary lobbyist. Partly this was because the tribe had no funds to pay for these services. Later as the scale and reach of federal regulations and legislation affecting Indian tribes expanded and as the tribes' businesses and revenues grew, attending to those enterprises required more and more of the chief's time, leaving less time to devote to the legislative process it became prudent to hire outside lobbyists and legal counsel to assist in addressing the tribe's federal advocacy needs and to assign additional staff in the chief's office to assist in coordinating the tribe's public affairs efforts. Before the tribe retained Preston Gates, it had retained the law firm of Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker here in Washington to provide some legal services in public affairs work. Primarily in the area of self-determination in health and in education. the tribe continues to work with Hobb Strauss and with other law firms, firms who have represented the tribe for many years, such as Wise, Carter and Carraway, and Scott Sullivan, Streetman and Fox firms in Mississippi, and Roth Van Amberg, Rogers, Ortiz, and Yepa in New Mexico. All have provided a high caliber of legal representation and have done so with honesty and scrupulous adherence to their duties to the tribe as a client. No less was expected from the other Washington firms hired by the tribe starting in 1995. In 1994, two simultaneous events occurred which required an, an expansion and a change in the direction of the tribe's public affairs work. First was the change in leadership of the Congress as a result of the 1994 elections. Second, the opening of the Silver Star Hotel and Casino by the tribe, also in 1994, gave rise to an array of new issues and concerns that had to be tracked and dealt with at the national level. The tribe also wanted to tell its economic story, how it was possible to use the tax and regulatory structures unique to Indian reservations and economies operating under tribal jurisdiction to achieve on-reservation economic development. This was not just a theory. The tribe had experienced successful economic development for 15 years before opening the first casino. It did so by finding products that could be made and sold, hiring good managers setting up a judicial system that provided fair treatment for outside parties, building a stable constitutional government with a separation of powers, and honoring its business contracts. When the tribe opened its first casino, financed 100% with borrowed money, it had to be proactive in protecting its casino operations and its ability to pay off its debt. Thus, In 1995, the announcement by the then Ways and Means Committee Chairman of a plan to subject tribal income to taxation set off extraordinary alarms with the tribe, because that meant that the tribe's gaming and other business revenue could be taxed up to 34 percent, threatening the tribe's ability to pay off its debt and undermining its capacity, provide essential governmental services to the some 10,000 tribal members. It was in this climate, then, that the tribe recognized the need to reach out to the new Republican majority and to redouble all efforts to outline its longtime unmet needs and its reservation development experiences with all members of Congress in a bipartisan way. Jack Abramoff was identified to us in 1995 as a potential public affairs specialist in the Washington office of a major law firm, Preston Gates. This firm, in addition to having ties to the new majority, also included former Congressman Lloyd Meads, who was known to the tribe as someone knowledgeable of tribal issues as well as of the government-to-government relationship that exists between the tribes and the Congress. At Chief Martin's request, I contacted the firm, and subsequently following a meeting with Mr. Meads, Mr. Abramoff, and others in the firm, a retainer agreement was executed. What followed was a very positive relationship with Preston Gates from 1995 through 2000. They did very effective work for the tribe, both at the federal level and through various grassroots projects. Then, Mr. Abramoff and most of his team left Preston Gates to join greenberg Troig in 2001. Since the bulk of the work done by Preston Gates for the tribe was in the area of public affairs and not ordinary legal work, and since Mr. Abramoff and most of his team, who had handled that work at Preston Gates, moved to greenberg Troig in 2001, the tribe then retained greenberg Troy. Later, Mr. Abramoff introduced us to Michael Scanlon as a political consultant who had several companies which he used for his public affairs, marketing, and grassroots work. When Mr. Abramoff left Preston Gates to move to Greenberg, there was no reason to believe that anything improper or unlawful had occurred in connection with his work. There was no reason to question the integrity, or otherwise doubt that the representation through Greenberg would be handled in any less professional and honest a way than we believed had previously occurred. Unfortunately, those expectations were not met and misconduct did occur. Details on what that misconduct was and how it occurred will be addressed by Mr. Kilgore, the Tribes Attorney General, in his opening statement. However, before I turn to Mr. Kilgore, there are some matters which the tribe wishes to clarify, largely because of errors by the media in reporting on these events. The first, the tribe has never authorized any payment for the purpose of sending any member of Congress on any golf trip anywhere, and this includes the widely reported Scotland trip. Second. The tribe did not contribute any money to Americans for Tax Reform to buy the opportunity to attend a White House meeting with President Bush. In particular, no money was paid to ATR for that purpose as regards the White House meeting on May 9, 2001, and no tribal representative attended that meeting, as has been reported in the press. Third, the tribe decided years ago that its core governmental operations including public relations and related public affairs activities that were administered through the Office of the Chief would not be funded with gaming revenue. In this regard, none of the funds the tribes paid to Americans for tax reform for various purposes in 1999-2002 were generated by the tribe's gaming operation. And finally, The tribe has been extremely careful to ensure that its public affairs efforts complied with all the applicable rules. That remains the case. The behavior of both Mr. Abramoff and Mr. Scanlon, which is the subject of this hearing, is not associated with the nature of the work they were doing for the tribe, but misconduct in the way the tribe was charged for that work and in the diversion to themselves of those payments. (laughs) from lawful authorized activities. And in this regard, Senator McCain, the tribe appreciates your acknowledging that the tribe hasn't been accused of wrongdoing at any point in these proceedings, and we appreciate that. Now, if you're agreeable, I'll ask Mr. Kilgore if he can complete the tribe's opening statement.
0: Kilgore. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, many uh, members of the committee, we've again thank you for this opportunity to present the tribe's views uh, with regard to this investigation into the misconduct of Jack Abramoff and Michael Scanlon. As previously referenced, I was only appointed uh, to serve as Choctaw Attorney General recently, but since then I have worked closely with the Tribes Outside Legal Counsel, Mr. Rogers, to fully acquaint myself with this investigation and review his analysis and conclusions of the evidence. Clearly, After my consultation with outside firm and with your staff, Senator, it has become apparent that Jack Abramoff and Mike Scanlon engaged in a consistent pattern of kickbacks, misappropriated funds, payments induced under false pretenses, and padded billings. First of all, the kickback scheme. Under the kickback scheme, we learned that Mr. Abramoff caused Mr. Scanlon, who was represented to us as an independent contractor, to quote prices which included undisclosed and exorbitant add-ons in the fee. They would then split, half going to Mr. Abramoff as a kickback, half being retained by Mr. Scanlon as monies obtained under false pretense. All of this was in furtherance of their gimme five scheme. It should be noted that while the prices were high, they were not out of line with other billings from other contractors for similar work that we had experienced. We now know, after reviewing thousands of email exchanges, that before these quotes were given, Mr. Abramoff and Mr. Scanlon had already agreed upon the amount of extra money that they were going to solicit from us under false pretenses and then split between themselves. I refer to, as an example of that kickback scheme, an email, uh, Senator McCain, dated September 2nd, 2001, which your staff has. Uh, Mr. Abramoff, so let me see that seven hundred thousand each for us and a hundred thousand for the effort. Seriously, what do you think we can score? Response. If you think they're good for it, then I can slide you three hundred and fifty with no sweat. Plus you have three hundred and thirteen sitting here. So if you want, six hundred and sixty three thousand is yours on Tuesday. When the clip comes in, another three fifty, which I will put which will put you over one, being one million dollars. But that's not all. Uh, there will be more when the dust settles, and if we get the full 4.6, much, much more. I think the 350 strategy is the best way to go. It's good on the give-me-five front. Response, thanks. I'm having a great time running the give-me-fives. And who was that? At? That was the exchange between Mike Scanlon and Jack Abramoff. Without objection, be made part of the record. Thank you. The past Q- The pass-through scam, the second phase of the fraud that was perpetrated on the tribe. Regarding grassroots advocacy projects, some of the actual work was always going to be performed by various third parties after passing through the Scanlon companies. For example, American International Center, Capital Campaign Strategies, Scanlon Group, Public Affairs, or other entities, such as the National Center for Public Policy Research or the Capital Athletic Foundation. The tribe never agreed that any of these monies were to be retained by Mr. Scanlon or Mr. Abramoff. When the tribe was quoted a price for a given project, the tribe expected that its payment to fund that work would be expended for that purpose. And where there were pass-throughs involved, that the money would be passed through to the appropriate lawful entity for that purpose. In this regard, The tribe was also induced in 2002 to send large sums to NCPPR and CAF. Mr. Abramoff did not, as the chairman has observed, disclose to us that CAF was Mr. Abramoff's private charity, nor that he sat on the board of directors of NCPPR. These payments were made on Mr. Abramoff's representation that the funds would be used to carry out previously approved grassroots projects. Instead, these additional funds were solicited and used to generate money to complete the financing of unauthorized kickbacks and fee sharing arrangements per Mr. Abramoff's and Mr. Scanlon's Give Me Five scheme. Another email is an example of this uh, pass through scheme was an email between Mike Scanlon and Jack Abramoff dated Friday, May 31, 2001. An extraordinarily candid exchange, Mr. Scanlon says, "Here is the overall plan. We need about 200,000 to run the operation, leaving 1.3 million to split, or 650 apiece. So, to make you whole, the idea was to get the 500 to CAF directly, then have AIC cut Kago a check for the remaining 150. Clearly, perpetrating a fraud on his client." The last area that we have investigated and looked at, uh, looked at uh, thousands of documents along with your staff, we've learned that a number of the bills received by the tribe from Greenberg, Traurig, contained fabricated time entries and unauthorized expense charges. Unlike many or all of the other tribal clients who retained Greenberg and Jack Abramoff, Choctaw's retainer agreement with the firm was on a regular hourly billing basis. The tribe never agreed to pay a flat fee per month. However, it is now clear that Mr. Abramoff consistently manipulated the bills at Greenberg in order to have them approach a minimum billing target of fees and expenses of between $135,000 and $150,000 a month. When the actual hours of work completed were insufficient to approach that target, Mr. Abramoff routinely directed that the bills be padded and pumped up. The email that I wanted to refer to, Mr. Chairman, is the one that you have already uh, uh, referred to about the uh, you, he only had two hours and therefore he directed that that be pumped up so i'm not going re- I'm not going to repeat that email. but we we also know that there's a significant amount of unauthorized expenses charged in those billings, and it was structured in such a way that the, looking at the bill, the tribe couldn't detect those unauthorized expenses and, and billings. After we learned what had happened, we were surprised that a senior director at a major law firm could, and would engage in misconduct of this part, whether, it, whether it's the billing fabrication or the more egregious gimme five scheme, and, and he was able to get away with it for so long. What we have learned regarding Mr. Abramoff's misconduct at Greenberg has caused us to take a closer look at his work at Preston Gates. Those inquiries have just begun. It presently appears that some similar financial misconduct also occurred while Mr. Abramoff was at Preston Gates, though on a vastly smaller scale both as to billing improprieties and as to Mr. Abramoff's unlawful diversion of money. We have initiated discussion with Preston Gates on these matters, however those discussions are in a very preliminary stage. In regard to Greenberg, we wish to acknowledge that positive settlement negotiations with that firm are now underway, and that we have been assured that they will take appropriate action to address and remedy any concerns and issues which we may identify as to any respect of our relationship with that firm. They have responded to this situation in a professional and honorable way, which we very much appreciate. Thus, we are confident a mutually agreeable settlement of our claims respecting these issues will be reached with Greenberg. In closing, I want to thank the committee for its efforts in the investigation. We are moving forward with our efforts to build our reservation economy, which also benefits our non-Indian neighbors as well, and to strengthen our government-to-government relationship with the United States, to enhance our capacity improve health care, education, and employment opportunities for our members. Mr. Chairman, we consider this a lesson, and we will endeavor to ensure that we will not experience anything like this in the future.
1: Thank you.